Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. We're very fortunate that every three months, the amazingly talented and insightful Peterson Toscano of Citizens Climate Radio guest hosts here on Spirit in Action, and today is the day. As always, Peterson finds intriguing folks and facets of the issue for consideration. Today, there's a discussion of things like mental health, birding, and much more. Without further ado, over to you, Peterson Toscano, and I'll go work on my taxes. Thank you, Mark. I am super excited about sharing four interviews from recent Citizens Climate Radio episodes. Later in the program, you will hear from Taiki James. He was one of the lead organizers of last year's Black Birders Week. As an African-American who enjoys birdwatching, he reveals how birding in Philadelphia helped him see the inequity right under his nose. You will also hear from a Republican lawmaker who has now dedicated his life to speaking with fellow conservatives about climate change. And he will give us helpful insights for speaking with Republicans about climate change and creation care. We also hear from two professors who explore climate anxiety. Sarah Jaquette Ray wrote the book A Field Guide to Climate Anxiety. You will hear from her in the second half of the show. First, though, I begin with Dr. Krista Heiser, who shares groundbreaking research on how to effectively reach students. Let's talk about our feelings, especially our feelings around climate change. In particular, let's look at what young people are feeling about it and how they are learning about our rapidly changing climate. Meet Dr. Krista Heiser. I'm a professor of composition and rhetoric at Kopi'olani Community College in Honolulu, Hawaii. I currently work for the UH system on a very interesting reassignment, director of the Center for Sustainability Across the Curriculum, working in the office of the Vice President for Academic Policy and Planning, and with the UH system Office of Sustainability. Actually, Dr. Heiser joined us in the Art House for episode 51, Art and Identity. Krista gave excellent recommendations about climate fiction. Today, though, she's here to tell us what she has discovered about students and climate change. Her research uses focus groups, interviews, and reflective writing to learn more about student and faculty perspectives on climate change and sustainability. In addition to how students are feeling about climate change, the researchers were curious about how young people learn about climate in the first place. Are they getting what they need from their teachers and classes? Students are learning about climate change from the world around them. They are seeing it with their own eyes. Um, beaches that they go to that look different, and then talking with family members about things they used to eat, places they used to go. So we were surprised that 19 and 20 year olds would feel like they're seeing these changes, but that's what they reported to us. In fact, college faculty were just about the last most frequently mentioned source of climate change information. So it's the world around them and then movies, documentaries, peers, friends, social media, of course. 
and then college faculty. So I was very interested in how do we shift that so that more students who are attending college are learning about climate change. In a moment, you will hear some suggestions of how schools and universities can address this teaching and learning gap. There is a bigger piece of the puzzle we need to consider, though. This is the role of students' emotions when climate change is introduced into the classroom. Students' feelings can actually undermine their ability to understand and learn. Back in 2018, I first met Krista at her school in Honolulu. She had just begun meeting with students in these focus groups. As we sat in her office with a gorgeous view of the campus and the rich island vegetation, she told me about an eye-opening encounter she had with a student. This encounter led to her research project into students' emotions and climate change. Um, I think I first got this idea actually sitting right here in my office. And right where you are sitting right now, I had a student. He was actually from Hong Kong. And in my class, in English 100, we had read the book, Man with the Compound Eyes. And this book is about sea level rise and trash and basically trash gyre, the island washes onto the shores in Taiwan. And he had read it in the original Chinese. And he sat in my office right where you're sitting and he started to cry. And he said, I don't understand why your class is the only class where I'm talking about this. This is like five years ago. This is before Greta Thunberg has brought our awareness to what it feels like to be a young person in this reality and not have your teachers meeting you where you're at emotionally. The result was the Worry and Hope study, which formed 18 groups with 150 students. The study was approved by the Institutional Review Board. In the study, they asked the students, what do you know, think, feel, and do about climate change? What does the research reveal? We asked students, wow, we've been talking about all these things. How does this make you feel? And then analyzed 997 emotion utterances, coded those emotion utterances, and then grouped the emotions into more generalized emotions. And we came up with this pie chart that illustrates those student emotions, and they are anger, fear, sadness, shame, and hope. This pie chart has been so interesting for lots of faculty across the country. We've presented it at a couple different conferences, and it's basically data that shows what teachers already knew. It never had been really presented in a data set for them. This is stuff they already knew and had seen these emotions, but now we could really talk about how do we meet these emotions in a discussion in a college classroom. A couple people have actually replicated the questions. There was someone at University of Michigan who took our focus group protocol and replicated it in a survey and asked students at University of Michigan the same questions. His analysis showed almost the same spread of emotions, fear, anger, sadness, shame, and hope. No surprise, this is how young people feel. In fact, many adults feel similarly. When we share information about climate change, we do well to consider the emotional needs of those hearing our message. 
If we're not engaging with these emotions, then the students are not actually learning. There's something about the teaching of climate change that doesn't always stick, particularly between high school and college. Climate science and climate change impacts is part of, say, the common core in the K-12 curriculum. It's something that they're supposed to have learned and covered, but it doesn't seem to me like it necessarily sticks. Students learn it. They'll even say, I've learned about the greenhouse effect so many times, but could you explain it one more time? They sort of understand it, but they don't feel very confident about their understanding. And so if we're not engaging the emotional body, then they're not actually learning it. Having this data has opened up a set of discussions about best practices, techniques, and approaches educators can use to better reach their students. Connecting with peers around the USA and looking at various teaching theories and practices, Krista and fellow researchers are on a quest to discover or rediscover the methods that will help students learn about climate change. The publication where we'll be sharing this work in the Journal of Community Engaged Scholarship is a special issue on climate change and knowledge translation. I had to learn what knowledge translation is all about, which is a whole interesting field. And I learned there this idea of knowledge brokering. And that's really what faculty are doing, knowledge brokering. I learned something about, say, climate science or uh, glacial melt or methane bubbles or something. I learn about it. And then I'm choosing what to represent and share to my students and how to do that. All knowledge is brokered knowledge. And that's really the role that faculty are in. And so in the knowledge translation literature, I came across the work of Michael Pogliani in the 1960s. And Pogliani had identified this implicit knowledge that he called an indwelling. I'm in love with this word, the indwelling. And that's the feeling of it. You can learn something in your mind, but if you don't create an indwelling for that information, it doesn't stay. This is called head, heart, hands work. There's lots of different frameworks for this, but I just really love that word of how do we create the indwelling for climate information. To create the conditions needed to facilitate this indwelling of knowledge, Krista suggests we break out of traditional styles of presentation. We've got to stop teaching climate change in a PowerPoint. Even though so much information can be presented that way, how do we present it in discussion, in dialogue, in art, in experiential ways, so that students can really internalize it? Now, as people who talk a lot about climate change, we have our own feelings that bubble up. While being transparent about our own emotions might seem like a good way to help students and others get in touch with their own, Krista suggests we consider holding back on sharing our own feelings and instead make room for students to get in touch with their own first. What we're finding that faculty need to be cultivating is a way to learn a skill set to hold space for different emotions. 
Students need more than to comprehend the science behind climate change. The scope of the issue extends well beyond the world of science. In fact, Krista advocates that climate change instruction be liberated from the sciences into all aspects of instruction in our schools. It's a new aspect of the faculty role that I think we're looking at. My main takeaway from the research is that teaching climate change is everybody's academic discipline. When students get a little piece from me and a little piece from a science teacher and another piece from a philosopher and another piece from even their math teacher, this is how they create that indwelling and create their understanding that's going to sustain them through their lifetime. College students, these are young people, 19, 20, 25 years old, and we're giving them the foundation of how they're going to understand this changing world and the knowledge that's going to sustain them and the ways of thinking that are going to help them adapt and respond to this. So it's, it's really very, very important work. Young people are seeing climate change firsthand, yet they get mixed messages. So we talk about cognitive dissonance a lot, and in the context of this work, what I mean by cognitive dissonance is when what you're learning in the classroom doesn't mirror or reflect what's going on in our crazy world right now. You know what I mean? Like there's, if there's a mismatch. In a class, they may learn about the overwhelming amount of plastic pollution in the world. Then after class, as they walk around campus, free plastic keychains, frisbees, and desk organizers. That's what we mean in this work by cognitive dissonance. We just wanted to flip that around and think, how could we create greater cognitive resonance. Dissonance is what leads to anxiety. And resonance is what leads to indwelling, right? Is what leads to empowerment and hopefulness. Little things can create cognitive resonance. If we were on campus, when students can see things like composting food in the cafeteria, or not having plastic water bottles, those type of campus sustainability efforts, they really matter because they support cognitive resonance. They show a change is occurring. To find out more about Dr. Krista Heiser's work and her ongoing learning, she created the Teaching Climate Change Field Note blogs. So Field Notes is a part of a qualitative research method That's about thinking and processing the conversations and interviews that you're doing. It's sort of like thinking out loud in my blog. I think about what I'm thinking and what I'm reading and how it intersects with the fascinating interview subjects that I'm interviewing. Visit teachingclimatechange.medium.com. That's teachingclimatechange.medium.com. I have links to Dr. Heiser's blog and the study in our show notes. I'm collecting up a community of conservatives who care about climate change. Traveling the country virtually now, used to travel the country uh, actually, to find conservatives who care about climate change and to encourage those who aren't quite sure yet 
that this is a cause for them and that they have a solution that fits with their values. That's Republican Bob Inglis, former congressman from the state of South Carolina. Bob is the executive director of Republic Inn. He and his group believe in the power of American free enterprise and innovation to solve climate change. Bob's conservative Christian faith has shaped his worldview and his politics. During much of his time in Congress, like many conservative Christians, he was skeptical of climate change. Then something changed. Bob's faith, values, and his family, along with a series of personal experiences, reshaped the way he viewed the issue. He now feels an urgent need to enact solutions to address greenhouse gas pollution. I asked Representative Bob Inglis about his faith, his climate conversion, and how his pro-life stance connects to creation care. I grew up in the Episcopal Church, came to understand Christianity as a relationship, not a religion, in college, then spent a long time in the Presbyterian Church in America, which is a very conservative Presbyterian Church uh, denomination, and then returned to the Episcopal Church. In some of the Presbyterian churches of, of America that I was a part of, there'd probably be a real quizzical look on some people's faces, like, you doing what, Bob? <laughs> but not so much in my church now. They're, they're very much very supportive. My metamorphosis, you know, is first my son asking me to look again at environmental policy when I was running for Congress the second go-round. Second step was going to Antarctica with the Science Committee. Third step was a spiritual awakening Great Barrier Reef with an Aussie climate scientist who's now become a very dear friend who inspired me by the conservation changes he was making in his life in order to love God and love people. That's a good cause for respecting life is to see it as God's handiwork and to love people by protecting the vulnerable. Surely that's the case in climate is that we're about this effort to protect people who would otherwise bear the brunt of this to whom much is given, much will be required. And so we have this opportunity as those who have a great deal, a lot, to care for the least of these, the people who are going to bear the brunt of it, the people who are picking our produce, the people who are living in places that are close to sea level, the people that are going to deal with those tropical diseases as they spread, all those things. So it becomes an opportunity for us to really care for others. Whenever I speak with American conservatives who are pursuing solutions to climate change, I point out how the left has taken the lead on the climate movement. Much of the message is from the left, and proposals like the Green New Deal come from the left as well. I asked Bob about what he would like to see different in the climate change movement. And what about those on the left who are doubtful or suspicious of Republicans promoting climate solutions? Yeah, you know, I might change that a little bit by saying it's not that we want to change the fact that the left has been involved in climate. That's great. We need more people from the left involved. But we really need to add people from the right. And we need people from the left to accept those folks that we bring to the conversation, to let them join in. People have been gracious to me, extended grace to me, because I, you know, was six years in Congress saying it's nonsense. After being out six years of practicing commercial real estate law, I came back to Congress with a different affect. And I was accepted, have been accepted by many 
who could have uh, shunned me for those six years of being on the wrong side of this. People of the left, please show grace to those that we're going to add to the conversation. What's been lacking is conservatives who just not been at the table coming forward with those practical, sensible solutions that could work. In the case of CCL and a price on carbon dioxide, there what you see is an eminently sensible solution that is embraced on the left and on the right. That's what's exciting about this, is the opportunity right there to bring America together and lead the world to a solution. Bob's organization, Republic Ian, is promoting actions that will mitigate climate change through decarbonizing the economy, policies enacted that will create jobs and wealth for Americans. With climate change, though, impacts are already interrupting communities and the economy. We also need to adapt to sea level rise and other impacts. Even this morning in the Greenville, South Carolina newspaper, there's a story about Charleston, South Carolina, looking at a a seawall. That story really helps us in the climate mitigation department. Here it was clearly climate adaptation as we're going to build a higher seawall around Charleston. But it helps us with talking about policies to mitigate climate change, to head off climate change as well, because it focuses the mind. You mean we have to have a, a wall? To protect Charleston? How high the wall got to be? Well, it's got to be pretty high. Oh, wow. Well, that focuses the mind on, you know, why don't we see what we can do to make it so we don't need it quite that high? You know, we'd like to keep a view here. Bob Inglis has gained insights about the resistance we climate advocates sometimes face. When we come up with somebody who's really hard over against climate action, the thing that I find hard to do, but I've got to remind myself to do it, is to just be aware that they're probably afraid of something. They're afraid of a change in their life. They're afraid that they're going to be called the laggard, the last one to get it, the dumb kid in the class. What we've got to do is work overtime to address that fear and to listen to it. I'm now preaching better than I can do. <laughs> you know, most of the time I want to talk rather than listen, as probably most of us do. But if I can persuade myself to just listen a little bit, like in that Tantra Island experience, to hear what it is that those residents are afraid of on that island, the island's going under. If I were there and I were facing the end of my life as I know it, in other words, my way of life of crabbing for a living in this beautiful place with generations behind me, people knowing each other in this very tight community and realizing this all going to go underwater, I might be inclined to deny it as well because the acceptance of it would be too terrible try to walk a mile in their shoes and figure out why it is that they're rejecting the information. And then also give them just time to come around and realize, hey, you know what? We're literally all in this together. Yeah, your island's going to go first, but a place that I value very much, the coast of South Carolina, and my home county is the number one county at risk in the whole of the United States, says a recent study based on financial impacts and other impacts, health impacts. So we're all in this together. So let's see if we can figure some way forward, but, but mostly just try to listen and understand them and not come off as the people who, who have it all figured out. Last month, we featured the progressive evangelical Christian speaker and author Tony Campolo. 
And speaking about creation care, Campolo believes we will only take climate change seriously when humans, especially men in power, see the earth and its resources in a different way. Instead of domination and extraction, political and business leaders need to develop and act as protectors of the earth. I asked Representative Inglis about Reverend Campolo's teaching. It turns out Bob knows of Reverend Campolo's work and admires a famous sermon Tony preached. I especially love his famous sermon that has a constant refrain, it's Friday, Sundays are coming. Look it up, it's really powerful. Yeah, you're raising the question about dominion theology, you know, and this is something that probably some in the CCL community have encountered is people who say, you know, God gave us dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, and that is exactly the word that is used in Genesis chapter 1. But what I like to point out to people is, yeah, and what does that dominion look like? If you look, for example, at Jesus, well, let's see, he's washing the disciples' feet on that Good Friday, Sunday's a coming. That's the job of the lowest slave in the house. He says, you must be the servant of all. He broke all kinds of these maybe hyper-masculine codes of not speaking to women in public, for example. He talked to the Samaritan woman at noon at the well. So here he is breaking all those things and being quite the nurturer. Tony Campalo is clearly onto something. My point, again, to anybody who asserts dominion theology is, yeah, yeah, and what does that dominion look like? Apparently, it looks like servanthood. It doesn't look like rip it up, tear it up, use it up. It looks more like care for it, nurture it, foster it. That's what it looks like. Bob Inglis is the executive director of Republic Ian, an organization offering conservative answers to climate change. Learn more at republicen.org. That's republicen.org. They also produce their own podcast called Eco Rights Speaks Podcast. You can find Eco Rights Speaks wherever you get your podcast. I'll also have links in our show notes. Special thanks to Republic EN's communications director, Price Atkinson, for setting up my interview with Bob. Stay tuned for more Spirit in Action. Taiki James will tell us about an awful racist incident in New York Central Park. That incident led to an event he and his friends organized. This event revealed another side of being black in nature. Plus, Sarah Jaquette Ray tells us how to keep our cool on a warming planet. We're halfway through today's Spirit in Action show, guest hosted by Peterson Toscano of Citizens Climate Radio. Links to Peterson and all of his guests are on northernspiritradio.org, as well as links to all of our Spirit in Action guests going back to 2005. Post comments on the shows when you visit. Reflect on the option of supporting our programming by donating via our site, But for sure, remember to support your local community radio station, like the 42 or so stations that carry our programs. Now back to Peterson Toscano for part two. Sarah Chiquette Ray is a professor of environmental studies, a writer, and a mom. She doesn't necessarily see herself as an artist. And taking on climate change, though, she recognizes the essential role of the arts. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, you don't have to make the case to me how important art is in this. And I think people often think that because of the urgency of the moment, we can bypass a lot of the kind of creative effort and the imaginative work and the visionary work that we need to do. But Danella Meadows and all kinds of huge environmental thinkers in the past have always claimed that the imagination and the vision is the necessary groundwork on which to build anything in the first place. We do need to really slow down to do that work. The urgency narrative of this moment also makes it easy to sidestep issues like social justice, kind of default to the dominant or majority voice in the room just so we can get some decisions made and get moving. There's a real danger to that. I do criticize the urgency narrative of most mainstream environmental arguments about our moment. On Earth Day 2020, in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic, she published a book that is helping people navigate their strong feelings about climate change. Yeah, my book is called A Field Guide to Climate Anxiety, How to Keep Your Cool on a Warming Planet. The basic premise of the book is drawn from my experience with students teaching environmental studies classes for the last 10 or 11 years. If I wanted to actually turn these students into the sort of citizens and leaders of environmental change in the future that I proclaimed that we would do, they were going to need to have much more emotional and existential and psychological attention to how the material was being presented and processing it for them. Reading Sarah's book, I saw how the concepts she covers are not just helpful for students in high school and college. They're the questions and issues artists who are engaged in climate work consider all the time. For storytellers, Sarah suggests we adjust the lens of how we look at climate stories Telling the stories that will have the most impact takes real work. If we think about how media frames everything in the negative frame and that the media actually covers increasingly more and more just negative news because of the constraints of the way media is being produced in this day and age. And if we think about that combined with our kind of reptilian brains that want to focus and have a negativity bias towards the negative, that's a kind of a killer cocktail for thinking only about the world going up in flames. Living in that story of the world spiraling into chaos or spiraling into doom creates a emotional ecosystem in our lives that's really not conducive to action or empowerment or positive impact on the world. It's not that the bad things aren't happening, but that the vast majority of the media that we consume is only about the bad things. It's super difficult for media to tell stories about the good things that are going on because the good stories, the stories of slow change and slow hope, don't fit the narrative frames of dominant media. Telling those stories that are really incremental and slow is very challenging for media, and so we don't see much of it. And therefore, it takes actual work, and it's a discipline of the mind, to seek out stories of solutions happening. But what happens when we focus on the stories of solution, what happens when we surround ourselves in all of the examples of positive change, it's not that we you know, sit back on our laurels and say, oh, everybody's got this covered, I don't have to do anything. But on the contrary, psychology shows that stories of people successfully doing good things in the world generates more people wanting to do good things, and it makes us feel more like doing good things. I started to pivot a lot of my teaching away from trying to arm students with more and better and stronger arguments to defend their position on some sort of rhetorical soapbox when they go out and argue in the world, 
and more around making sure that they can cultivate good relationships with people and that being in relationship with each other and being relationship with people who are different from you and have different politics than you and also with the more than human world is actually the the foundation for the kind of changes that we need to see. And so if I was going to change my own thinking about that, I was going to have to change my own teaching around that. What would it mean to center my assignments and my curriculum around relationship building instead of content delivery? Social capital and community trust is far more effective at having communities bounce back from a disaster, for example, than anything like infrastructure or other kinds of emergency band-aid fixes on a problem. If we start to think about cultivating relationship and trust as the primary solution to our problems, it, it changes things. So many young people, though, feel overwhelmed by bad news. Sarah witnessed how much they struggled in one of her classes. I didn't realize how important the imagination was until I did an exercise with my students that I had been a subject of in a different workshop. Close their eyes and you know really kind of do this vision exercise where they visualize themselves 10 years from now or 20 years from now. When somebody comes up to them and thanks them for all of the things that they've done to bring about this wonderful world that they live in, I asked them to think deeply about what is it that they would have done? What it was their what was a sort of breakthrough moment that they realized that they had contributed or intervened or made a big difference in creating a, a positive future. I thought I was getting all, you know, deep with my students and I asked them to open their eyes and share back what what happened. What what did they do? You know, what were they being thanked for? And my students could not respond. And finally, they said to me, well, we just couldn't imagine a future. And I thought, are, you know, are you just not stepping up to the plate? You can't imagine your future? What kind of weaklings are you? You know, or I was mad. <laughs> Actually, it didn't take long for them to explain that, in fact, that the reason why they had weren't able to imagine the future was because it was just too hard to look at. There wasn't maybe a future that they could imagine wanting. There were two students in the class that day, and they, were, they could imagine a future, and they had the radical imagination. And they looked around at their, their peers, and they were so horrified and so heartbroken that they actually turned their career goals around fostering and creating and generating a radical imagination. And they've been producing artwork and various other things since. And to realize how essential it is to imagine the future there's no way that future is going to happen, that positive future is going to happen if we can't imagine it. The not being able to imagine it is a result of the stories we've been consuming about how terrible things are. Adrian Marie Brown asked the question, what would it take to imagine living and thriving in a climate cha change future rather than fearing it? What would it take to desire that future rather than fear it? And that was really a turning point for me. We're not going to have this future. It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. We won't have this positive future if we can't even, if the despair about it's possibly being terrible causes us to not do anything in the first place. Finally, Sarah strongly urges her readers and her students to be mindful of their own needs. While tending to the wider world, do not overlook self-care. The environment and, and the planet are not actually going to be helped by us disciplining and, and punishing ourselves to the point of not existing. The environment and the planet need us to actually thrive so that we can engage in this work and create the community to continue to do that. That kind of thriving, as most other social movements know, starts with self-preservation.
the more we can do that, the more uplifted we'll be, the more success we'll feel, the more immediate sense of purpose we'll feel, and the more we're going to find a lot of other people who are doing the same thing. And there is nothing more joyful and hopeful than working on a collective goal in, in a collectivity. Our resilience and our ability to have thriving and being and have daily well-being and notice beauty and tend to the things that we love and all the other stuff that I write about in the book is basically impossible if all of our hormones and chemicals are not doing that help for us. And there's a certain amount of that we can control, not all of it for sure, but a certain amount of our dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, you know, endorphin levels, we have control over and emotions are connected to chemicals in our body. So, you know, at the level of our body, we need to be making sure that we are healing from trauma, that we need to do that work on ourselves to make sure we're as resourced as we possibly can to act from a place of abundance and do the work that we need to do. The name of the book is called A Field Guide to Climate Anxiety, How to Keep Your Cool on a Warming Planet. And the book can be purchased at the University of California Press's webpage, or you can purchase the book through my local bookstores, Northtown Books or Eureka Books, and all of the proceeds from those purchases, which can be delivered mailed to you or picked up at the bookstore, those will all be donated to those local bookstores. You can follow me on Twitter at sjaquetteray, that's S-J-A-Q-U-E-T-T-E-R-A-Y, or my website is sarahjaquetteray.com. Of course, I have a Facebook page for the book, A Field Guide to Climate Anxiety. I organized bird walks with members of Congress and congressional staff to demonstrate the conservation priorities of birds in ways that not only address climate change, but can also be economic stimulus, when also birding just gets people outside, and who doesn't like that over a meeting? You know, anybody can have a meeting where you talk about these numbers, you talk about the figures, which is important and still necessary. But it means something different when you can share an experience with these decision makers or the folks who inform the decision makers. That's Taiki James. He is National Audubon Society's Government Affairs Coordinator. Taiki also co-organized last year's Black Birders Week. I am left-handed. I think that's always important for people to know. I think it's also important to say that I am black. I'm a black birder. Now, I confess, I used to think of birdwatching as an activity for retirees who have time and means to head to national parks. Frankly, it looked like a very peaceful, monotonous fringe hobby. Wow, was I wrong. I've gotten to know some serious birders back in the USA and now in South Africa where I live. With their binoculars, cameras, and mobile apps, they sit so still they make Quakers look restless. They watch and listen intently, and then experience moments of triumph. I now see that birding can be an action-packed competitive sport, and it's not just something to do in the rural countryside either. Most of my birding overwhelmingly has been in cities, has been in the city of Philadelphia. There's birds here! (laughs) David Lindo, shout out to David Lindo, he wrote the book on urban birding, literally and figuratively. Please check out David Lindo. I started my career in conservation. I, you know, my, or I should really say my start as a birder came as a job. Typically, it's a hobby for folks, 
But for me, it started as an environmental educator at the Cobbs Creek Community Environmental Education Center in West Philly, where my first assignment in a cohort of folks, my first, our first assignment was a species to study. We study that species as much as we can. I got the Belty Kingfisher, so I was looking it up in the Petersons and the Audubon and the Sibleys. So I'm looking for, you know, everything I can get on it, try to present it, you know, when I come back to work. And when I came to work that next week, because it was a, you know, weekly weekend job, I got to see the Belty Kingfisher. I saw the female Belty Kingfisher on top of a cattail and do its call as it crossed the creek. Nothing gives me more joy than sharing that initial birding experience with someone. Someone who, like most people, see birding as a weird, why are you looking at things that are intentionally kind of hard to see? Um, like, I can totally understand that. I like meeting people where they are in the, in the middle of a conversation, stopping, looking up, and then, like, flexing my ears to see if I can pick up was that a titmouse or a cardinal? And then they'll be like, what do you mean? Then we start talking about it. Birding also made Taiki more acutely aware of social issues in his environment, issues that needed attention. This job was connecting me to my community. It was connecting me to nature. It was connecting me to the history of injustice as to why in my travels of watching birds in the city of Philadelphia, I see that some parks have park benches, street lights, and trash cans, more accessible, more maintained. And then other parks don't have those three elements, those fundamental building blocks of what makes a safe and welcoming park. When you ask yourself why and you look into the history of decisions that were made that made uh, some people, some zip codes sacred, and some people and some other zip codes sacrificial, it becomes very clear that the determining factor is race and poverty as to see where environmental blight, environmental hazards, and environmental burden are disproportionately placed. And I was able to see that just through bird watching. In early spring last year, as the coronavirus pandemic was the number one global news story, another story also dominated the media. The national conversation when it was about the black experience it was particularly around the passing of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Aubrey. Ahmaud Aubrey, who was jogging in Georgia before he was taken from us. Sometimes I think that he could have been watching birds, right? Christian Cooper uh, was doing his thing in Central Park, birding. Sorry, I'm asking you to stop. A recorded confrontation in Central Park, which took a racially charged please turn. Can I take any pictures calling the cops? Please, please call the cops. Please call the cops. I'm going to tell them there's an African-American man threatening my life. The man behind the camera, Chris Cooper, says this all started Monday morning. The avid birder was in the area of the park known as the Ramble. The birds stop here and they are looking for habitat. And one of the best places is the Ramble. An area which signs show dogs must be leashed. So when he asked the woman, Amy Cooper, no relation to Chris Cooper, to do that, she apparently refused. I had pulled out my iPhone to record the incident because I, I try to do that routinely when, I, when there's somebody who's like just really intransigent about putting their dog on the leash. That made her irate. I'm in the Ramble and there is a man, African-American, he has a bicycle helmet. He's recording me and threatening me and my dog. I wasn't going to participate in my own dehumanization and feed that. So I 
just kept recording. I'm being threatened by a man into the ramble. Please send the cops immediately. Manhattan District Attorney candidate Eliza Orleans has been a public defender for more than a decade. I know that the DA's office uses these hysterical 911 calls as categorical evidence of guilt. Without a recording of this interaction, it would be very difficult to refute her accusations. It's not just about her. You know, she tapped into something that is pervasive in our society. Having an experience, a viral experience of racial harassment in, during that time, particularly in the lens of the birding community, there was a group chat where we were like, well, let's, let's think about what this means. Let's think about what it would mean to rise to the moment. Because we did not pick our moment. Like, right, like this is not at all anything that we planned very far ahead of time. It was in the group chat that I typed out Black Birders Week, question mark. <laughs> and it, it seemed like a good pitch. It was put together in a matter of hours before it started, basically. It was like riding a bike as we were building it. And the bike was going downhill. But downhill in a good way. It was safe. Everyone had their helmets on. It was just really exciting. And I still think that there's part of me that still exists in that week because it was like a timeless barrage of, I mean, mostly being on the internet. I had a broken ankle at the time, so I wasn't going out birding. It was just very, very engaging. And it had such an impact globally in a way that I don't think anyone really expected. I mean, we were going to have fun with it. The organizers of Black Birders, we, we knew that if we were just the audience, we were going to be just fine. Being an audience to so many people in a way that inspired them uh, really, really means a lot. Karina Newsom, who appeared in episode 30, What Does the Bible Say About Climate Change?, got the week off to a great start. The way Karina kicked off uh, Sunday, Black in Nature, with that video was really great and, and it really I mean it was something nice to wake up to if, he, if people were just like you know bird twitter was just being bird twitter the impact was huge just how big I did ask some of my friends at the National Audubon Society what was the social media footprint of Black Birders Week during those six seven days and the number that I got was 600 million impressions what does that mean? Right? Like, what does that mean? I don't know, but that 600 million sounds exciting. <laughs> like, it just sounds exciting. Through Blackbirders Week, Taiki and fellow Blackbirders were determined to tell stories that happen all the time and get drowned out. When the black experience has been part of the national conversation, what we see is trauma so much. The black experience goes beyond trauma. The black experience encompasses joy, pride, resilience, strength, and style. Black Birders Week was all about that. It's nice that I can have a space, create a space, and build a space with people where we can be our authentic selves, uh, knowing that we live in a country that is majority white and whiteness has had a head start in defining so many things. So it's nice that my blackness and my birdness 
can create some joy. For Black Birders Week, we had a um, day where we would post a bird pick. I chose the European starling, a bird that is quite ubiquitous in in the United States, North America, and Europe. European starlings' ancestors and my ancestors, we share the reality, the history of being brought across the Atlantic Ocean on ships against our will. And now we're just both here. So every time I look at a European starling, I always think about that, where I'm like, huh. Huh. Taiki is quick to point out he is not a one-man show. My support group, I think, starts with my girlfriend who helps make sure that I'm eating between interviews and, and meetings. And she's always down to have something fun, do something fun. And, you know, she's actually started her Ebert list this year. Gave me a very humble lesson in thinking about bird expertise from a new birder to me, relatively a veteran birder, because she identified a fox sparrow. that I was sure was a song sparrow. I am so glad that she stayed on the path of, hmm, I don't think this is it. Looking at the field guide, looking at the pictures, putting things together. I'm really glad that she stayed on that. And, you know, that's one of the reasons I really adore her. She's really smart and headstrong. And she's a birder now. So, you know, even even better. I also want to thank my mom. She's always uh, checking in on me, um, even though she's in Philly and I'm in D.C., we haven't seen each other in a while. We do Zoom cook-offs together now, and I take a lot of time doing that. Um, if I'm not birding, if I'm not trying to organize stuff, I am in the kitchen. That patience and the connection that I feel with her in the kitchen is just how strong our relationship is, and I really love that about her. While he was unable to physically go out birding last year as he recovered from an injury, for this year's Black Birding Week, he is going big. You know, I want to do what I can to build the black birding community in D.C. And so, I think I want to do a big week in D.C. For those who aren't familiar with the big week or what does that mean, it just means that I'm going to bird for seven days and try to see as many birds as I can all over D.C. Hopefully with that, I can bring more attention to birding spots in D.C. that are in predominantly black neighborhoods that I know and I've become familiar with because the birding community will always list seven ward or seven eight as the last places. (laughs) And it's just like, why is that always the case? Hopefully I can bring a community of birders to enjoy this activity, to enjoy this community. Birding is a coalition builder. Most of my experience with birding is all about building coalitions. It's all, all about organizing people. Taiki models resilience and creative engagement with the world around him. He recognizes we can't always control the circumstances we face. We cannot change everything right away. Still, we're not helpless. We are in a time of deep uncertainty and challenge and strife. None of this is easy. There is no manual. I didn't get a... Did you get a manual in the mail on how to do this? Did you... It never came for you, did it? Okay. Well, I didn't get mine either. If anyone did get theirs, help us out. But in short of having those instructions on what to do next, it's important that we follow our values. 
It's important that we normalize how we demonstrate those values. It should never be a surprise to someone to hear an organization or an individual say Black Lives Matter. It shouldn't be offensive, <laughs> you know, to to want to dismantle the status quo that has benefited and has had a head start for white supremacy and white privilege and patriarchal ideals that funnel into activities, that funnel into behaviors, that funnel into the things that we call normal today. So if you know those big name things are wrong, there are intentional and personalized things you can do. To hear my entire conversation with Taiki James, visit Citizens Climate Radio over at soundcloud.com. Be observant like a practice birder. Be on the lookout for hashtag Black Birders Week as it appears in Twitter feeds, social media, and news reports. And you definitely want to follow Taiki James. I try to be easy to find. My name's Taiki James on Twitter and Instagram. I also am the co-chair for the Black and Latinx Birders Scholarship Fund. You can check that out, amplifythefuture.org. That will be a growing project, a growing effort to get more black and brown people in STEM, get more black and brown birders supported by the birding community. You can also see Wildlife Observer Network if you are interested in some of my podcast or, or YouTube. I think that those are the best plugs. You have been listening to selected highlights from Citizens Climate Radio. Our show is a project of Citizens Climate Education. I'm Peter Santoscano. Please feel free to email me directly, radio at citizensclimate.org. That's radio at citizensclimate.org. Now, back to Mark Helpsmeet. Thanks, Peterson, for sitting in for me today for Spirit in Action and for all of the invaluable work that you do. And folks, links to Peterson and his guests are on northernspiritradio.org if you want to follow up. But in any case, we'll see you here next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Oh